all of the very prominent Republicans and people who have been outspoken against vaccines, suddenly they come down with a bad case of COVID. It's all too suspicious. Yes. How did that happen? It's so suspicious. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle of you. Oh, they're everywhere. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites and a bunch of affiliates who we can't thank enough for carrying the broadcast. Uh, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. And though we blanket planet Earth five days a week, I should note that Desi and I will be off tomorrow on the next broadcast, at least, getting our uh, booster shots. Nicole (laughs) Sandler will be sitting in for us. Hello, Desi Doyen. Are you excited about your booster shots? I am ready. I'm not. After uh, what happened to me on the shot number two, and yeah, I was sort yeah, of laid yeah. out for a couple of days. It was really, really hard. But, you know, it was of short duration and it ended with you feeling just fine. It evaporated. After a couple of days, you are correct. We'll yes. see how shot number three goes. But I'm all, only mentioning this uh, just in case, as I say, Nicole is in on the next broadcast. We will be back thereafter. But if we're not and we have a rerun now you know why. All right. Uh, let's start with some of uh, some 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 good economic news that we have been citing of late that does not show up as an alert on your iPhone or at the top of the nightly network news for some reason, because it's not bad economic news. It's good economic news. And the corporate media is loath to make too big a deal out of that. You know, that sort of thing. God forbid. Weekly jobless claims tumbled again last week, reaching a fresh 52-year low, 52-year low as the U.S. jobs market climbs out of its pandemic-era hole. According to the Labor Department on Thursday, initial filings for unemployment insurance totaled just 184,000 nationwide for the week ending December 4. That is the lowest rate going back to September 6th of 1969. 
even lower than the uh, surprisingly low uh, 190,000 new job claims from the week prior, which also came in at, let's see, it came came in lower than 200,000 for the first time since 1969 as well. Since the Nixon administration. Correct. That, as corporate media were uh, wringing their hands about initial reports on new job numbers for November coming in somewhat lower than expected, even though they know. They know by now that every single month this year, those numbers have been subsequently upwardly revised by the Labor Department, sometimes by more than double the initial report. Those numbers, of course, are pushed to everyone's mobile phone apps and lead the nightly news when it's seemingly bad news. Uh, you know, when the as as the sky is falling on Joe Biden's presidency. Well, initial claims for unemployment insurance last week at one hundred and eighty four thousand were expected to total two hundred and eleven thousand for the week ending December four. That, according to a Dow Jones ec- economist survey. So the number actually beat expectations But when the new jobs number for November, sure to be revised later, came in below expectations at 210,000 new jobs, it was huge. It was very bad news for the economy and for Joe Biden, even though almost identical numbers during the Trump presidency, monthly new jobs numbers, as we detailed earlier in the week, were trumpeted by the Trump administration and, yes, by the corporate media alike as, you know, an economic miracle. An economy on rocket fuel, they used to say. Go figure. Uh, The four-week moving average for continuing unemployment claims also dropped by more than 50,000 in these new numbers. The total of those receiving benefits under all of the various programs plunged, plunged, falling three, more than 350,000 to just under 2 million through November 20. The number was about 10 times that level just one year ago. The number of folks receiving benefits uh, under unemployment uh, programs was more than 10 times the level just a year ago. Our friend and longtime progressive media analyst Eric Bullard of Press Run described these numbers today on Twitter, ironically, as... The Biden crisis of full (laughs) employment, (laughs) noting a quote that if a Republican had Biden's economic record after one year in office, the press would put him on Mount Rushmore. He also added, by the way, I guarantee behind closed doors, Republicans are panicked about Biden's red hot economy and specifically what press coverage will look like next spring and summer and fall when unemployment hits 3.3%. Well, I don't know if Bullard is right there or not. We will see. If the corporate media continue to ignore these facts and focus on other dishonest reporting and misleading numbers, uh, it may be too late by next spring and summer and fall for any real facts to make any real difference among an apparently very easily manipulated and fooled electorate. So, Hey, congratulations for listening to the broadcast and not being among those easily misled and manipulated. We will never fool you. More good news also for the working class today. Starbucks workers have voted to unionize 
at a store in Buffalo, New York, over the company's objections. The first company-owned store in the U.S. to become a union shop and pointing the way to a new labor model for the 50-year-old coffee giant, says AP. Well, no wonder uh, the the company worked so hard to try unsuccessfully to prevent this from happening, as we discussed, I think it was last week, with UC Santa Barbara labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein, uh, after the National Labor Relations Board ordered a new unionization vote at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, coming up this spring, that after the e-commerce giant cheated, and yes, violated the law during the first election that was held at the uh, Amazon facility in Alabama earlier this year uh, to prevent what they were trying to do was prevent the first domestic unionization of one of their facilities here in the U.S. Because, you know, if one group of workers learns that they have rights to collectively bargain for better wages and working conditions, well, before you know it, all of the other workers are going to realize that, yeah, they can and should have the very same thing. God forbid. <laughs> the nation, uh, National Labor Relations Board said on Thursday that the uh, workers at the Starbucks voted 19 to 8. That is more than two to one in favor of a union at one of three locations in Buffalo. The board is still counting votes for the other two stores. This would be the first for any Starbucks owned store in the U.S. to unionize after the company has actively fought unionization at its stores for decades saying that uh, it's its stores function best when it works directly with employees. That, of course, is the same propagandistic nonsense that the uh, anti-union consultants who were hired by Amazon told the workers at the Bessemer plant earlier this year, where those workers sadly fell for it the first time around. We'll see if they do it again for the re-vote coming up this spring. Yes, votes uh, at Starbucks could also accelerate unionization efforts at other stores around the country. Already three more stores in Buffalo and a store in Mesa, in Mesa, Arizona, have filed petitions with the Labor Board for their own union elections. Those cases are pending, but I find it all to be very, very exciting. <laughs> yes. The, uh, yes. One thing to remember uh, yeah. that Dr. Lichtenstein of UC Santa Barbara had said was, note how much money, how many millions Amazon yeah. and Starbucks are spending to block this unionization effort yeah. among their employees. That gives you a clue as to how important it is. Correct. Uh, the union votes come at a time of uh, heightened labor unrest in the U.S. So they're noticing all of these strikes that are now going on, striking oh, cereal workers at, uh, at the Kellogg Company. By the way, don't buy any Kellogg cereal or anything else made by Kellogg's until that uh, dispute is settled. Uh, the workers there rejected a new contract offer earlier this week. Thousands of workers were recently on strike at the John Deere Company earlier this fall. Labor shortages are now giving workers a rare upper hand in wage negotiations. Dan Graff, the director of the Higgins Labor Program at the University of Notre Dame, said the pandemic gave many workers the time and space to rethink what they want from their jobs. Specifically, I suspect, they want not to have their lives endangered at work 
or be underpaid for what they do or to otherwise be treated like crap. But I'm just speculating here. Maybe I've had too much coffee today. I don't know. And as long as we're on uh, what's actually possible when we actually try around here on the heels of our conversation on our previous broadcast with the American Prospects uh, progressive investigative financial journalist David Dayan on corporate monopoly price fixing and collusion under the deceptive cover of pandemic inflation and supply chain snarls. Oh, the supply chain is screwed up. What can we do? Well, we can raise prices way higher than are needed to make up for those supply chain snarls. That that's what's going on as, you know, all of these huge public companies are raising their prices on consumers, even though they were already making record profits during and since the pandemic. And they're pretending much of their price increases are due to just unavoidable supply chain problems. Well, on that beat, Italy's antitrust watchdog said on Thursday that it has fined Amazon 1.13 billion euros for uh, alleged abuse of market dominance in one of the biggest penalties imposed on a U.S. tech giant in Europe. Amazon said that it, quote, strongly disagreed with the Italian regulator's decision and that they would appeal. Now, 1.13 billion euros, that amounts to about $1.28 billion. That sounds like a lot of money at first blush. Uh, and I guess it is until you remember that this is Amazon, whose owner, Jeff Bezos, is the world's, well, now second wealthiest person as of last month. He was eclipsed by Tesla's uh, Elon Musk. But Bezos's net worth, according to Bloomberg, was $143 billion. His own personal worth, $143 billion. That after he was forced to give half of his wealth, I believe, to his wife in their divorce. So, yeah, $1.28 billion, frankly, is pocket change to the guy who runs the company. It's an even smaller amount to the company itself. But you know what? you got to start somewhere. And if every country where Amazon operated took similar measures to punish the company for their monopolistic practices, they might actually, uh, Amazon might actually start to, to feel it and maybe change the way that they do business. Maybe. We'll see. As, uh, as, as well as Amazon, Reuters reports today that uh, Alphabet's Google, Facebook Inc., now Meta, Apple Inc., and Microsoft Corp., have all also drawn heightened scrutiny in Europe. Oh, we wish them all the best. As David Dayan noted uh, on the previous broadcast, he is actually bullish on Joe Biden's new Federal Trade Commission chief and Biden's appointments to the antitrust division at the DOJ. So maybe we will someday be able to be as proud of our government standing up for its people as uh, as Italy's government apparently is able to do. But again, we'll see. Yes, a better world may be possible if we try. You're unlikely to hear uh, much about, frankly, any of these stories in the U.S. corporate media and especially in the right wing media where it is now officially, I'm calling it, Nothing but crazy town. <laughs> That's it. I'm calling it. And, 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 and while we usually try to ignore the nonsense that's happening over there, 
because you are smart enough to listen to the broadcast, you're you're likely unaware of just how insane things are actually getting over there. Uh, just in case you're wondering why so many Americans are so incredibly and dangerously clueless and angry about it because they are certain they are right. So every now and again, it, it may be wise for us around here to remind you of what you are not hearing about on the broadcast, where we actually hope to help you be smarter, not dumber and more misinformed and more confused every day. So uh, just as a reminder, just for fun, <laughs> what much, much of the rest of the nation is hearing about, particularly over in Magaland, uh, here's how right-wingers on a right-wing talk show, the Stu Peters Show, which apparently is on my pillow CEO guy uh, Mike Lindell's. Uh, he's the Trump's failed stop the steal conspiracy theorist guy, Mike Lindell. Uh, it's on his streaming media outlet, which I guess he has one. They all do now, I guess, uh, where, you know, he has actual shows and stuff on it. Apparently, this was unearthed by right wing watch yesterday. As a Daily Coast blogger describes it, Stu, Stu Peters is a seriously weird dude whom I'd likely be blissfully unaware of were it not for his regular slot on Pillowman Mike Lindell's sprawling vomit trough of a website called frankspeech.com. Uh, he speaks with Deanna Lorraine. That's his guest here. Uh, she is apparently a prominent QAnon adherent. On the December 7 edition of Peter's show, these two rarefied minds work together to solve a mystery for the ages. Why do anti-vax Republicans keep getting sick from COVID-19? I wouldn't be surprised if this so-called cold, the virus, the flu that I have right now was a targeted attack on me. Do you, do you speculate that some of that might be going on as well? A targeted attack? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, like the bioweapon being released on you, this, this sociopath yeah. Tony Fauci, when he chimerically engineered this taxpayer-funded uh, lab-originated, intentionally-released Wuhan China virus, <laughs> I mean, that could probably be used against people automatically. I mean, people, Republicans, conservatives, talk show host people being yeah. targeted with this virus, right? I mean, don't you think? So well, they can paint these, 100%. this picture, this paint the picture about, oh, well, he, Stu Peters got the coronavirus. He did it to himself because he's not vaccinated. Right. Exactly. No, 100%. I mean, we talked about last week with the World Economic Forum uh, launching this bubble gun that you can just, you just point a gun basically and someone gets a vaccine. I'm sure <laughs> that they have the power to, you know, target somebody to get COVID. All of the very yeah. prominent Republicans and people who have been outspoken against vaccines, um, pastors, etc., suddenly they come down with a bad case of COVID and it makes the news. You know, anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, pastor comes down with COVID. It's all too suspicious and I absolutely think people are being targeted. Well, they're going to have to try harder than this because this thing, whatever I have, is weak as hell. Um, You're stronger than it, that's yeah, for sure. I got, a, I got a, what, a little bit of a stuffy nose now and a little bit of a scratchy throat. whoop de doo mm. Yeah, okay, Stu. Yoki doke We will keep our eyes on that. By the way, Stu, you might want to keep your eyes on that uh, scratchy throat as well. Whoop-de-doo. But yes, how, how is it that all of these anti-vax, anti-maskers keep coming down with COVID? It is totally suspicious. I'm sure something must be up. He's so close to getting it. So close. They're right on it. They're right on it. Just a little, little further. Now, that guy, Stu Peters... How can all of these anti-maskers come down with COVID? 
Obviously, it's a conspiracy to get them. <laughs> uh, Stu Peters, he, he's actually being put on air or on Lindell's stream there by this uh, millionaire, or maybe he's a billionaire. I don't know how much the uh, betting magnate makes. Uh, you know, I, I, but it's it's only on the Internet, right? It's not on actual TV sets in people's living room the way, say, the much more respectable Fox News is, right? So here's a bit of what they are telling their viewers on the number one cable news outlet in the nation. Not just on the right, but for the entire nation, they are the still the number one news uh, cable news outlet. Here's primetime star Laura Ingram this week, I believe, commenting on a clip from the uh, Washington Post's Dana Milbank, who has finally joined those of us long warning that the divide in the nation is not about Republicans versus Democrats, but about supporters of democracy versus the rising tide of authoritarianism on the right. Here's Laura Ingram. It's not Democrats against Republicans. It's small D Democrats against authoritarians. I think we need to take a stand. Authoritarian? What are they even talking about, Congressman Banks? Authoritarians? Who's that? Who's that? What are they even talking about? That's That's crazy talk. Authoritarians? I have no idea who who they must be talking about. In America, what on God's green earth could that, you know, that far left communist BLM loving Antifa journalist Dana Milbank of The Washington Post possibly be talking about? But of course, Laura Ingram, she's just a Republican TV propagandist. It is not like she is an, an, an actual elected official. You know, with responsibilities, with the responsibility of looking after the safety and the security of of actual constituents like, say, the elected attorney general from my old home state of Missouri, Eric Schmidt. Uh, who sent a, a, a letter to President Biden yesterday welcoming him to the state where I guess uh, Biden is visiting this week. The letter from Missouri's Republican Attorney General to the President of the United States begins this way. Dear President Biden, welcome to Missouri. This is reportedly your first visit as president to one of the 25 states that cast its electoral votes for President Trump in 2020. It took almost one year. Welcome to the rest of the country. Well, that's nice. Uh, He goes on to say, in Missouri and around the country, things are worse now than they were before you took office. Really? Are you sure, Mr. AG? Because I have family in Missouri who were not able to leave the house at that point as people were dying by the tens of thousands. But okay, things are worse now in Missouri. He goes on to say, families are spending more for food, gas, and other daily necessities as inflation hits a 30-year high. Goods are not only more expensive, but they are also harder to find due to supply chain shortages, which, you know, is totally the president's fault. I don't know why he's not out there uh, manning the ports himself. Parents are worried that gifts will not arrive in time for Christmas. The horror under Donald Trump's postmaster general. These are not uh, high-class problems or treadmill tragedies, writes Schmidt. These are real problems that affect Missourians. But while Missourians are concerned with finding and affording goods, your administration is focused on 
transforming our economy with unprecedented spending on socialist priorities. Your policies and your priorities are wrong for Missouri and for America. By the way, this letter from the Attorney General of Missouri was sent to the President of the United States on official Attorney General letterhead. This is not on Eric Schmidt campaign uh, letterhead. This is the Attorney General calling the president uh, socialist priorities. Uh, he goes on to say, Missourians' jobs are now in danger as well because of your policies. Your vaccine mandates are unconstitutional abuses of power that threaten the livelihoods of tens of millions of workers. So vaccines to keep people alive is a threat to people's livelihoods? Really? This guy is not the brightest bulb in the uh, Missouri pack, uh, though he may be the, he may be the brightest bulb in the Missouri executive branch these days. I don't know. Their governor, uh, who replaced the last one who was forced to step down in disgrace after it was discovered he had been tying up naked women in his basement and taking photos of them seriously to blackmail them to blackmail them right uh so that new governor he replacing that one is no genius but while schmidt goes on uh to claim that biden is responsible for all manners of things and that schmidt will continue to sue this dumb president who knows nothing about freedom or the rule of law or the constitution i will just note here that cnn fact checker dan dale's a fact check on this super genius Missouri attorney general uh, who's responsible for, you know, correctly and accurately enforcing the rule of law in the state. So you'd think he'd be able to, you know, get his facts straight when bothering to write to the president of the United States. <laughs> he opened the letter with this. Remember, dear president, Mr. Uh, president Biden, welcome to Missouri. This is reportedly your first visit as president to one of the 25 states that cast its electoral votes for President Trump. in 2020 took almost a year. Welcome to the rest of the country. Reportedly, reportedly, Mr. Attorney General. It's reportedly his first visit to one of the 25 states that cast their votes for President Trump. Uh, you know, checking out which states that Joe Biden has visited during his 10 months in office is should not be all that difficult for an attorney general. But as Dan Dale pointed out uh, when tweeting this out, this letter, uh, this letter from Missouri's AG and a Senate candidate begins by saying that this was reportedly Biden's first visit as president to a state that Trump won in 2020. Biden, in fact, has actually visited Florida, Idaho, Ohio, Texas, Louisiana, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and now apparently Missouri. Other than that, Attorney General Eric Schmidt was totally correct, <laughs> reportedly. Close enough, I guess, for an AG running for the U.S. Senate, by the way, against the former disgraced governor who tied up women in his basement, took off their clothes, photographed them and allegedly threatened to blackmail them. This guy is not as bad as that other guy, I guess. They're both hoping to become the uh, new U.S. senator from my old home state. All of it would be kind of hilarious. Were this guy, this attorney general, not actually helping to kill his own constituents in the bargain. All of a sudden, it becomes not quite as funny that this guy is an idiot. In a state where COVID infections and hospitalizations and deaths have now been skyrocketing in recent weeks and months. 
This article was recently shared with me by Allison, a listener from my old home state of Missouri. Uh, it comes via KMBC9, the ABC affiliate in Kansas City. This week, they write, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt has a message for local public health agencies and school districts. Stop enforcing mask mandates and quarantine orders. Schmidt sent a letter, apparently he likes to send a lot of letters, I guess, to all local public health agencies and school districts in Missouri regarding the Cole County Circuit Court decision in Robinson v. Missouri Department of Health. Uh, Schmidt said that because of that decision, all public health orders, all public health orders, including enforcement of mask mandates and quarantine orders and more, all of them are now null and void, he declared. In a press release this week, Schmidt proudly announced, quote, Today I sent a letter to public health agencies and school districts across the state informing them of the decision and demanding that they rescind and cease enforcement and publicizing of public health orders of mask mandates, quarantine orders, or other orders that were declared null and void by the recent decision. Public health authorities and school districts have gone unchecked, he says. Yes, would someone please check those out-of-control public health officials? It's, it's like all they care about is public health or something. And don't get me started on those out-of-control school districts trying to keep students and teachers from dying. What are they thinking? They've gone unchecked, according to the Missouri Attorney General's statement. Issuing illegal and unconstitutional orders in their quest to aggregate, maintain, and exert their newfound powers, said Schmidt. My office will enforce the court's order across the state. In the letter to health authorities, Schmidt said failure to follow the court's judgment may result in legal action being taken against the health department. In the letter to schools, Schmidt writes, in addition, state law does not delegate authority to school officials to issue mask mandates, quarantine orders or other public health orders. Your school district should stop enforcing and publicizing any such order immediately. Let them all die, he added. He actually didn't add that last part. I added that part. Uh, I made that up. Our listener, Allison, uh, sent that article to me via bradcast at bradblog.com and asked, what happened to Republicans being the party of local control? Isn't this government overreach, she asks? Shouldn't school districts be free to do what they think is best? Yeah, well, you would think so. She said, I teach at an elementary school near St. Louis, and it is so frustrating that the adults in my state don't care about keeping their children safe. Actually, she says, they are working to make schools more dangerous. Thanks for all the great shows lately, she says. You and Desi keep me sane. Aww. Allison. Thank you, Allison. Uh, but who is going to keep us sane? Well, frankly, folks like Allison do, in truth. So uh, thank you. Thank you for sending that to me. It is maddening. As you know, as a listener, I have long asked what has happened to the Republicans being the party of local control. I have long noted, in fact, for years that they have been lying 
about being the party of local control and of small government. They don't care about it. They never did care about it. The only time they care about local control is when local government uh, agrees with them about something. They are just fine with big government whenever big government uh, agrees with them. So... Yeah, it's all madness, but uh, I think it's necessary to remind you of the madness that is out there. In some better news, take a break here and uh, some some good, uh, I think, accountability news for the former disgraced president who took all of the madness that was already out there, all of the toxic poison that was already in the water and, uh, yes, uh, added rocket fuel to it over the past four or five years. Some accountability may be ahead in two different cases. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Breaking rocks in the hot sun. I fought the law and the law one. I fought the law and the law one. Yeah, the law has not won yet, but the law is working on it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. It was, I think, just a few weeks ago on the on this program uh, that we covered a whole bunch of stories. Remember this, Desi Doyen, with the walls sort of closing in on Trump and his criminal friends from all sorts of angles between the U.S. The, the U.S. House Select Committee and the investigations in New York and all of his attorneys facing uh, sanctions in courts for lying about the 2020 election, claiming it was stolen when, in fact, what they were trying to do was steal the election for Donald Trump. I, th- I think I described uh, described it at the at the time as no way out for Donald Trump and friends. And while the speed at which the legal and judicial system move forward. I realize it can be maddeningly slow. Yes. It can feel like nothing is happening and that the worst criminal to ever call himself president of the United States by far. And that is saying something that he he just may get away with everything. I know it feels like that. Some days. Every day. I understand that perfectly well. And uh, but, you know, maybe because I have no choice, uh, but I don't really think so. I continue to believe that, yes, the walls are, in fact, closing in on Donald Trump too slowly, to be sure, but closing in. And we've got two stories today that I want to hit uh, very quickly here, one from this morning and one that broke just before airtime that would seem to underscore my hopefully not over optimistic outlook on this stuff. I really don't want to mislead you, but uh, the walls really do seem to be closing in. New York Attorney General Letitia James is now seeking a deposition. That would be under oath from former President Donald Trump early next month as part of her long investigation into potential fraud inside the Trump organization. That, according to Washington Post, who broke the story on Thursday morning. Attorney General James 
But just by way of contrast with the idiot in Missouri, the attorney general there, uh, Attorney General General James has requested to take Trump's testimony on January 7 at her Happy New Year at her New York office as part of a civil investigation into whether Trump's company committed financial fraud in the valuations of properties to different entities. For example, you know, telling the bank when seeking loans that certain properties were worth tens of millions of dollars, so loan me lots of money on that collateral, while telling the IRS at the same time when paying taxes on on those very same properties that, oh, those are dumps. They're barely worth any money at all. So don't tax me. Don't. That's right. Keep my tax rates really, really low. All of which amounts to fraud. Trump's formal personal attorney, as you will recall, Michael Cohen, testified to this scheme before Congress and that is apparently what triggered James's probe and a related criminal probe by the Manhattan District's attorney, which the state attorney general has also now joined. Uh, in their inquiries, New York prosecutors are examining financial statements related to several of Trump's properties, including his California golf club, which is very nice. He valued that uh, same parcel of land, that California golf club, at $900,000. And at $25 million, depending on the intended audience. That was quite a discrepancy. Yes. Uh, and an estate in uh, suburban New York for which Trump's valuations ranged from $56 million in some cases and $291 million in other cases. The valuations were all given in the five years prior to Trump winning the presidency. One of the people familiar with the investigation said that James is examining whether widespread fraud, quote, permeated the Trump organization, which I'm sure could not be the case. In a statement, the Trump organization decried the move as a politically motivated, say it with me, witch hunt. <laughs> The statement uh, said this political prosecution is illegal. So the prosecution itself is illegal, according to the Trump organization, unethical and a travesty to our great state and legal system. The deposition marks an escalation in the probe of the former president's company. Both the attorney general and the Manhattan district attorney's office are scrutinizing whether Trump's company broke the law by providing low values to property tax officers while using high values to garner tax breaks or impress lenders. James has said she's considering filing a lawsuit over the matter, and Manhattan prosecutors have now convened a new grand jury to consider potential criminal charges related to the company's financial practices, according to the people familiar with the investigations. You'll remember that the uh, Manhattan prosecutors have already brought a case against uh, the company and its CFO, Alan Weiselberg, for uh, basically uh, hiding payments that he paid himself for a whole bunch of stuff that they didn't count as salary and therefore they didn't uh, it wasn't taxed. So, look, Letitia James, a Democrat, just took down the longtime Democratic governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, to call her a partisan well, uh, kind of uh, strains common sense, it seems to me. This is not a woman also who is afraid of pretty much anybody 
it seems to me, and Trump will be under oath in that deposition in January. And both James, Letitia James, and the Manhattan DA have been working on these cases for a very long time, so they know the facts here that they're about to ask Donald Trump about. And if he lies about them under oath, he's going to be in big trouble for that alone. So I see this as a very encouraging development in that case, even if it's a deposition for the civil, not the criminal side of this case. But I suspect whatever James gets in that uh, depot will be made available in the criminal side of the case as well. So Trump is walking into potentially some real trouble here unless he can figure out another way to slither out of all of it, as he does. But for now, I don't know uh, what way that would be to slither out of it. Last year, James's investigators subpoenaed the former president's son, Eric Trump, longtime executive at the organization, seeking to depose him as part of the same investigation. He initially refused to comply, but eventually he did because he had no choice. He later agreed to comply. He was questioned in uh, October of 2020 and earlier this fall. The former disgraced president sat for a four and a half hour deposition in another case. In that lawsuit, he was questioned by lawyers for a group of protesters uh, who have sued him, alleging that uh, Trump's security goons assaulted them outside of Trump Tower back in 2015. So he is not immune to consequences, even after serving as president, as some may think. And Frankly, he says a lot of stupid stuff when he is not scripted. He says a lot of stupid stuff when he is scripted. But when he's not scripted and when he's speaking off the cuff and he's speaking to someone like Letitia James, who I'm sure gets under his skin. Well, he could be walking into big trouble there, in my opinion. And then there is this more good news breaking late this afternoon from another body that appears unwilling to put up with any crap from the former president. A federal appeals court, we've been waiting for this uh, decision, a federal appeals court ruled on Thursday against the effort by former President Donald Trump to shield documents from the bipartisan U.S. Select House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. In a 68-page ruling, the three-judge panel tossed aside Trump's various arguments for blocking through executive privilege records that the committee regards as vital to its investigation, looking at the run-up to the deadly riot, which was aimed at stealing the 2020 presidential election. Judge Patricia Millett, writing for the court, said the Congress had, quote, uniquely vital interest in studying the events of January 6th, said that President Biden had made, quote, a carefully reasoned determination that the documents were in the public interest and that executive privilege should not be invoked. Trump also failed to show any harm that would occur from the release of the sought-after records, uh, according to the uh, judges, the three judges here. Former President Trump has provided no basis for this court to override President Biden's judgment and the agreement and accommodations worked out between the political branches over these documents. Yes, this is a case where the executive branch and the legislative branch are all in agreement. It is only Donald Trump that is complaining and whining. Uh, both branches agree, the judges note, that there is a unique legislative need for these documents and they are uh, directly relevant to the committee's inquiry into an attack 
on the legislative branch and its constitutional role in the peaceful transfer of power. So the appeals court ruled that the injunction that has until now prevented the National Archives from turning over these White House documents from Donald Trump's time in office. Uh, that injunction, they determined, will expire in two weeks. Merry Christmas. And when the or or when the Supreme Court rules on an expected appeal from Donald Trump, whichever comes later. So it might be beyond Christmas. The National Archives has said the records that Trump wants to block include presidential diaries, visitor logs, speech drafts, handwritten notes, quote, concerning the events of January 6th from the files of former chief of staff Mark Meadows, who is in his own trouble, probably facing uh, contempt charges uh, brought by the committee for refusing to testify uh, and quote a draft executive order on the topic of election integrity, whatever that might mean. So do we have time here, Des? I think so. Uh, when we're as long as we're talking about election integrity, Joe Biden convened what he called a summit of democracies. Yes. Around the world with more than 100 uh, Democratic nations from around the world as I know, uh, well, Laura Ingram, uh, her, her, she, she wonders. Authoritarian? What are they even talking about? Authoritarians? Who's that? Who is that? Who knows who that is? Yeah, we know who that is. And so does President Biden, who opened this uh, summit of the democracies this way on Thursday morning. In the face of sustained and alarming challenges to democracy, universal human rights, and all around the world, Democracy needs champions. And I wanted to host this summit because here is the uh, here in the United States, we know as well as anyone that renewing our democracy and strengthening our democratic institutions requires constant effort. American democracy is an ongoing struggle to live up to our highest ideals and to heal our divisions, to recommit ourselves to the founding idea of our nation captured in our Declaration of Independence, not unlike many of your documents. We say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all women and men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to renew it with each generation. And this is an urgent matter on all our parts, in my view. Because the data we're seeing is largely pointing in the wrong direction. Freedom House reports in 2020 that marked the 15th consecutive year of global freedom in retreat. Another recent report from the International Institute of Democracy and Electoral Assistance noted more than half of all democracies have experienced a decline in at least one aspect of their democracy over the last 10 years, including the United States. And these trends are being exacerbated by global challenges that are more complex than ever and which require shared efforts to address these concerns. By outside pressure from, out, from autocrats, they seek to advance their own power, export and expand their influence around the world and justify the repressive policies and practices as a more efficient way to address today's challenges. That's how it's sold by voices that seek to fan the flames of social division and political polarization. And perhaps most importantly, and worrying of all, most worrying of all, by increasing the dissatisfaction of people all around the world 
with democratic governments that they feel are failing to deliver for their needs. In my view, this is the defining challenge of our time. Democracy, government of the people, by the people, for the people, can at times be fragile, but it also is inherently resilient. It's capable of self-correction and it's capable of self-improvement. And yes, democracy is hard. We all know that. It works best with consensus and cooperation. When people and parties that might have opposing views sit down and find ways to work together, things begin to work. But it's the best way to unleash human potential and defend human dignity and solve big problems. And it's up to us to prove that. Democracies are not all the same. We don't agree on everything, all of us in this meeting today. But the choices we make together are going to define, in my view, the course of our shared future for generations to come. And as a global community for democracy, we have to stand up for the values that unite us. We have to stand for justice and the rule of law, for free speech, free assembly, a free press, freedom of religion, and for all the inherent human rights of every individual. My late friend, Congressman John Lewis, was a great champion of American democracy and for civil rights around the world. Learning from and gaining inspiration from other great leaders like Gandhi and Mandela. With his final words, as he was dying to our nation last year, he reminded our country, quote, democracy is not a state, it's an act. Democracy is not a state, it is an act. My fellow leaders, members of civil society, activists, advocates, citizens, we stand at an inflection point in our history, in my view. The choices we make, in my view, in the next in this moment, are going to fundamentally determine the direction our world is going to take in the coming decades. Will we allow the backward slide of rights and democracy to continue unchecked? Or will we, together, together, have a vision and the vision, not just a vision, the vision and courage to once more lead the march of human progress and human freedom forward? I believe we can do that and we will if we have faith in ourselves and, our, and in our democracies and in each other. That's what this summit is about. I'm looking forward to the connections we'll build to support our work moving forward. So let's get to work. That was President Biden uh, at the White House on Thursday opening this week's first ever Summit of Democracies attended by about 110 world democracies declaring, yes, democracy is hard. <laughs> And it does not happen by accident. No, and we have to keep fighting for it. It is uh, an act. So we will we'll keep it up. We join him in that fight. Quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Too much news? Too much fighting for democracy, too much seeking accountability. So, yeah, we're running late. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. It's going to be infrastructure decade now, man. 
Biden executive orders set federal government on path to net zero emissions by 2050. They're starving. Um, And I don't see the videos, I see it in person. Florida's beloved and threatened manatees to get unprecedented help. Plus... This comet contains $30 trillion worth of material. What do trillions of dollars matter if we're all going to die? Oh no, what if we're rich? That would be terrible! Don't look up. Hollywood's fictional doomsday stands in for an all-too-real threat. All of those all-too-real threats and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The first Omicron case on U.S. soil was found in California, which led the state Secretary of Health and Human Services to claim Californians were proud to have identified the first Omicron case. Good for you, Golden State. You put that kind of positive spin on all your disasters. Greetings from California, home of extra crispy trees. <laughs> this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. Uh, Some good news, I guess, from the President of the United States this week. Yes, President Biden on Wednesday signed a series of executive orders putting the federal government on the path to net zero emissions by 2050 with an interim goal of cutting the government's carbon emissions 65 percent by 2030. That's not bad. The orders direct the federal government to use only 100 percent carbon-free electricity by 2030, transition its fleet of more than 600,000 vehicles to zero emission vehicles by 2035 and modernize 300,000 federal buildings and infrastructure to be net zero emissions by 2045. I'll take it. The orders launch a Buy Clean initiative using the considerable power of the federal purse to prioritize procurement of products with low greenhouse gas emissions. The federal government is the largest purchaser in many areas with annual purchases of $650 billion in goods and services. So the shift could have a huge influence on the private sector with significant ripple effects across the economy. Nice. Now we just have to wait for the Supreme Court to stop it all from happening. In much less good news, the power grid operator for New England has warned customers this week of a higher risk of rolling blackouts this winter because global oil and gas shortages and price hikes... You mean price fixing? ...are triggering a heightened risk of straining the region's power grid if weather conditions turn ugly for an extended period. This year, the world's liquefied natural gas market is much tighter than it was last year, in part because of the years-long push to increase exports of U.S. produced natural gas, which means that U.S. customers now compete with Asia and Europe for supply. So we've sold all our supplies overseas and now we ain't got any here at home. Kind of. Brilliant. The U.S. Wildlife Service and Florida wildlife officials unveiled an unprecedented proposal this week to feed some of the state's threatened manatees in a limited test program to help the gentle, beloved marine mammals survive the winter. More than a thousand manatees have died this year. It's linked to the loss of seagrass, their primary food source, and water pollution, red tides, and algae blooms, which are triggered by rising ocean temperatures and runoff of human waste and fertilizer from farms and lawns. Wow, that is horrible. Yes. 
But some good news. Japanese carmaker Toyota announced construction of a new electric vehicle manufacturing plant in North Carolina that will produce batteries for hybrid and electric vehicles. Oh, so Toyota has finally decided to jump into the game. Yes, Toyota says the factory will begin operations in 2025 with the capacity to produce batteries for about 800,000 vehicles a year to start and will generate more than 1,700 jobs. Well, better late than never. Separately, an EV startup called Arrival announced it will invest $11 million in a new factory to assemble high-voltage battery modules, also in North Carolina. The Edison Electric Institute, the private utilities industry trade group, this week unveiled the National Electric Highway Coalition, a consortium of privately owned utility companies that are joining forces to accelerate deployment of electric vehicle fast chargers, with the goal of making rapid EV charging available along all of the nation's highways by the end of 2023. And finally, Axios reports that the new film Don't Look Up, coming soon to theaters and Netflix, is a climate change comedy disguised as a movie about a fictional doomsday crisis that shows the many ways that science has been warped and steamrolled. Cast member Jonah Hill used his interview on Jimmy Fallon's show to push for the Climate Emergency Act in Congress. I'm not a political man, but I do believe in climate change and my girlfriend will kill me if I don't read this. I just will say, I don't know how to deal with this stuff. It feels like Mount Everest. You can call or email your congressperson and ask them to support H.R. 794, the National Climate Change Emergency. That's it. Very easy, if you're into it. And here I thought the Green News Report was the only climate change comedy in town. (laughs) For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Don't you let it be the state of emergency. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, uh, our producer. Very well done. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And as it is the end of the year, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate for your end of year giving. You can drop me email if you want. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You'll find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at thebradblog. The great Nicole Sandler is in for us on the next thrilling broadcast as we are having our booster shot. In theory, we will be back thereafter. In theory, didn't go that well for me on shot number two, so we'll see how shot number three goes. Anyway, I hope to see you soon. Until we do, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. State of emergency.